Thank you. Now, Pastor Mike promised me that I don't have to preach, that all I have to do is share what God laid on my heart. So even with fear and trepidation, my hand and feet and everything, everything else is shaking right now. But I pray that God will speak, still speak through me. Now, question. If someone pray for patience, you think God will give them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If someone pray for the family to be closer together, do you think God will zap them with some fuzzy, warm feelings? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? If someone pray that our young people will grow closer to God, will really know God, do you think God will just, um, that we'll just tell them about God and preach to them day after day, week after week, just pound them over the head with the Bible? Or do you think we should tell them, teach them in the way they should go and then provide opportunities for them to stretch, to be challenged in the faith that they have. Now, you'll recognize that the first, first part of it is not drama by me. I'm not that creative. Uh, it's from the movie Evan Almighty. No, don't worry. Uh, we, are, we are not basing our theology on a Hollywood movie. But I would like to sorry, share with you a little bit about what God has shown me about putting our walk with our talk. I'm, I'm no biblical scholar, as you know. I, I don't know Greek, um, even though when I teach calculus and physics, I think many of my students thought I was speaking Greek. Um, but, and I can preach. There's so many Greek speakers here that this at least don't appear as nervous as I am right now. But God has laid this on my heart. So I hope you'll give me the um, indulgence to listen to, to what I feel that God wants me to share. The parable of the sower is a very familiar passage to m many of us. Most of the time, I hear that passage from the Gospel of Luke, but it's actually in three of the four Gospels. I'd like to share, I'd like to refer to the one in Matthew, but I'm going to ask one of my students to help me read it uh, with us, for us. So, Tim? Okay, I'm, I'm not sure if I have the same version as you, but um, yeah. So starting at verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced a, and produced a grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Uh, yeah. Thank you, team. I'm, I'm sure you have heard many sermons on the seed, on the watering, on the soil. I'm not going to add to that. I just want to give a couple of observations about the surrounding, about the environment of this little story. I noticed that the seeds, it was sown out in the open where um, it could be 
it could fell on hard grounds, where it could land in um, thorny bushes, where the crops could and did fail. Now, why didn't you think the sower just put it in a greenhouse? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't that be safer? Just put it in a greenhouse and make it grow. Why? Well, obviously, that's not real. That's not what they will face. Or, why, why didn't the sower just pick the good soil? Wouldn't, now, wouldn't that solve the problem? Now, of course, as a teacher, it would be easy if I just pick those students that's going to get A's, that just score 100 after 100. It would be so easy marking. Check, 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 all, all correct. I'll get done within five minutes. Unfortunately, not all of us are like that. The world is full of all four type of people. You know, the amazing thing is, or one of the amazing thing is, that those hard soil, those rocky uh, places, those thorn-infested land, it could one day be that fertile soil. Under God's tilting, God's command, those soils could change. And that's exciting, at least for me. You just heard from two of my students. Uh, Stephanie, well, you know Stephanie. She goes to our church. And you heard from Boaz sharing about what God has taught them. Now, if you are given time, I'm sure if you ask every single one of them, they will have a story to tell you. And I hope when we, when we um, break this morning, you will corner them. I've already warned them that they must be available to talk. Corner them. Ask them. Every single one of them will be able to tell you stories. Even the two new members, Stephanie and Jennifer, they're only grade nines. They just joined us this year. So they've been on the team for only two and a half months. Every one of them will be able to tell you stories of how God stretched them how under uncomfortable situation, like standing, speaking in front of people, that God had challenged them and taught them about his truth, how they took that step of faith, how under difficult situations, at least for teenagers, the difficult situations, God came through. God was faithful. I did not take them. I, I did not only take them to be nice, comfy greenhouses. There will be times, and there will still be times for the rest of this year, that will be facing things, hopefully, that will t- teach them to trust, not in Mr. You, not in the program we have set. Now, we do plan things carefully, but who they trust is our boss upstairs, a mighty God who is way beyond what I can do. Going to China to share the gospel used to be the major emphasis of GID. We've been going for 15 years now. God has been gracious in leading this team for 15 years. Originally, Bible study, going to China, was a major emphasis. But for the past few years, God is slowly opening our eyes. The leaderships, we've been praying, we've been praying and praying and praying, and saying, God, where do you want this team? If it's your team, it must be your team. It cannot be mine. I'm not that good. 
Where do you want us to go? go? What do you want us to do? How do you want to lead us? And God's been showing us that, yes, going to China is very important. Or going wherever, wherever is very important. But that cannot be the end product. We realize that we don't want a team of students who know all about sharing the gospel, who can learn about cross-cultural ministries. Again, those are, those are nice. Those are important. But we want it. Now, well, we, we didn't want them also to learn about evangelism only, because that, that's good too. We want evangelism. But we didn't want baby Christians. We don't want a bunch of students who know about God or even about sharing him. We don't want even the people that we wish for Christ. We don't want people just know the saving grace. Again, don't get me wrong. That's very important. But we want them to move beyond that. We we want them to grow. We we didn't want to want to have actions without faith. That's useless. Nor do we want faith without actions. We want to encourage our students to grow. So for the past couple of years, we've been re-emphasizing, not that we didn't emphasize before, but we've been re-emphasizing the importance of growing ourselves, that we learn more about God, and through that, we share, and we encourage people. That's what Toko was talking about. We go on big trips where the whole team will go. We will share the gospel. We will pray with people. At the same time, we'll go on small trip where only four or five students with a couple of teachers, and we will share how to mature. What is prayer? As a matter of fact, we even took the Alpha course, the Alpha course for youth, and we started using them this year. We want them to know this God. We want them to grow, not as baby Christians. What do we want? We want this group of students to be discipled. We want them to disciple others. We want those disciples to disciple others. We want those disciples to disciple others, and so on, and so on, and so on. This is not a one-stop. This is a multi-stop, hopefully a never-ending stop until the Lord returns. The Great Commission. The Great Commission. The Great... Oh, there it is. (laughs) Uh, It's a, a really familiar passage again. See, I'm, as I told you, I'm no biblical scholar. I can't come up, uh, come up with some obscure passage uh, in Old Testament somewhere. It's a familiar passage to all of us. There are many important truths in this passage. But I only want to look at two words. Make disciples. There are many things, uh, many books have been written about it. I'm sure I'm not going to add too many new things to it. But I began to notice things again. One of the things I noticed was that as the seed fell on the good soil, it was prepared by the sower, and then it was planted. Given the proper condition, it multiplied. We are called to make disciples of all nations. That's what it says, right? Make disciples of all nations. Now, English is not my first language, but I do not notice uh, age restriction right there. Maybe some of you English people can tell me I'm wrong. I don't think it says it has to be adults that are making disciples. I don't believe it says it has to be above 60. 
It says make disciple of all nations. Age, not a prerequisite. I believe God has given us this group of students. You know, look at them. They're nothing special. Sorry. <laughs> They're nothing special in the sense that their power came not from their good looks. Their power did not come because they, they go to an international school, have wonderful math teacher like me. <laughs> their power came from the Lord, the same Lord and same Holy Spirit that's available to all of us. Every single one in here that who knows the Lord has the same Holy Spirit. I, I often remind them because I need to remind myself, it's not about me. It's not about them. It's not how many times we have practiced and we do practice. Not, not how many times we have taught them and we do teach them, but it's how they trust and rely on the Holy Spirit to lead them. When they face a, a person who didn't want anything to do with Jesus, they don't want anything to do with Christ, they cannot only rest on what we taught them. And I hope we have taught them things, but they need to rest on the Holy Spirit. We just finished our high school camp on Friday, a couple of days ago. We went on a three-day high school camp. And on the last day, during the last section, Pastor Dan uh, was there sharing about something. I don't remember. But <laughs> he was talking, and then at the end of that, he made an invitation. What followed just show me God is so great. At, at the invitation time, the, uh, the group of students here, plus other students, either former GID members or other students that have been discipled for, by other teachers, pay up in groups. When uh, Pastor Dan invited those students who want to accept Christ or who want to stay in the hall like this, they want to stay and pray, please stay. If you felt that you need to go, leave quietly. So about half the students stay behind. And then the GID team members plus other students get into groups and start talking to them. They did not just wait, teacher, teacher, help me. They, with the power of the Holy Spirit, start talking to people, start listening to people, start speaking words of encouragement start pointing them to the cross. At the end of that time, and they stayed there for about an hour. Can you imagine a bunch of teenagers staying and praying for an hour? At the end of that, that hour, we, know, we don't know all the details yet because it was just Friday. But at least two young people have said yes. That candle's lit because at least two have accepted Christ to say yes. And they are not left there by us old people. Young people, given proper training, given proper encouragement, given proper push. And besides those, there were many, many tears to when they recognized that God loves them. Another student not here, she's a former GID member. She was on the team last year. This year she, she wasn't on the team, but she emailed me this morning and said, I never realized there's so many broken people, so many hurt people in our school. 
And she was able to pray with them. She was able to encourage them. The tears, the tears of joy, the tears of repentance. The teachers, the teachers, we were just standing around. We were just, we were the assistants. They were the leaders. There are so many. I, I was moved to see so many really bowing before God, broken, contrite. The next step is follow-up. I fully expect this group of students and others, not only them, but others along with them, to follow other students, to be helping them to grow. As we we mentioned earlier, we don't want baby Christians. We don't want just a yes from them. We want to help them to grow so that in one day they can be sower as well. They can plant those seeds with the Holy Spirit's leading. I fully expect this group of students who are called to be disciples, they are not meant for the greenhouse. The greenhouse, yes, that's needed perhaps for a short period of time, but we expect them to take what they have learned, to take that step of faith. When they accepted the challenge to be a member of GID, most of you know what GID stands for, glow in the dark. When they accepted the challenge, when they apply, yes, I'm really mean, I make them apply long four or five pages of application form to join the team. When they apply to join this team, I expect them, we expect them to multiply 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. Why stop there? Why don't we continue? If the Holy Spirit is leading, if God is leading, that is what they are expected. Multiply. For the past few Sundays, we've heard stories after stories of how God was moving. We heard from Asok sharing about how God is moving in India. Then we heard from Pastor Leung sharing how God is moving in various places where AGS is working. Last week, you heard from Becky. Uh, I wasn't here, but I'm sure it was a good challenge. This week, you heard from a tiny grade 9 student. Well, tiny in size, but not in faith. You heard from a very shy and nervous grade 12. And then, just as shy and nervous teacher, sharing about our story. Well, technically speaking, it's really not our story. It's God's story working through us. Tell me, when will we have the privilege of listening to your story? I'm shorter than him. I'm going to stand up here. Well, I had a a message prepared, and, and you're going to hear some of it, but not much because... The Lord has been working throughout the service and throughout the month, and I want us to do something, and we're going to look. Uh, if you'll open your Bibles, I'd like you to open to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to make our way through that in just a, a, a moment. But King asked a good question that Ashok started with in week one of Missions Month, and that's, what's your story? Uh, 
I, I would hazard a guess that if you've shown up with us here at AIC today, whether this is your church home or you're here to support GID, that in one way, shape, or form, you have heard at least a little bit of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when we talk about missions, I wonder if we step back and ask the, the impeccably imperative and incomprehensible question of why missions? Why is missions our middle name? Why do we do it? And often we jump into Isaiah chapter 6 because of the wonderfully famous verse that is in the Old Testament, but it's not obscure. Here am I, send me. I, I tell you honestly, I am in Hong Kong because at one point in my life I said, Lord, here I am, send me. And this is where he put us. And that's a good thing. But there's so much more to the story than starting with verse 4 and 5. And so I'm going to read to you all of Isaiah chapter 6. And I want us to consider our response to God's word and what that means for us as a people of God. Isaiah chapter 6 says this, starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. (laughs) Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined. And without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be again, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaves stumps where they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Lord, as we consider, what do we do? 
with this message that you've been giving us over these past four weeks. I pray that we would be a people obedient to your word, that we would be about your glory. In your name I pray, amen. Well, I've had a a great week full of just amazing interactions with all sorts of different people. Uh, I got to meet one of my kind of spiritual just mentors in a sense. I've read a lot of his stuff. His name's Paul David Tripp, and he spoke about marriage. And if you weren't able to go to that conference, it was excellent. But on Friday afternoon, I was celebrating a friend's 50th birthday. And as the youngest member of the group, I try to respect my elders, and they they were all much older than me. And I got to hear the story of a man named Steve. And I'll tell you more of his story throughout. But interestingly, as we sat down to our meal... Steve was eating and he walked into the room carrying a scooter, which I thought he was just a really cool 50-year-old pastor kind of guy. And and he, when he sat down, somebody asked, well, what's it like eating for you? And I was like, I didn't understand where that question was coming from. And he said, well, with the nerves all messed up throughout my body, I don't ever experience the sensation of hunger anymore. And he said, so I just have to guess that I've given myself the right amount of food. And so he said, but I can taste. He said, thankfully, I can still taste food and it tastes good. But he said, often I'll go a full day and forget to eat. And I thought about that. And, so, and somebody asked the follow-up question, well, how do you know it's enough? And he wasn't trying to be over-spiritual. He was just being honest with, with the situation God has allowed him to live. And he said, well, I just trust God that the right stuff's getting in me. And I thought, Wow. And I didn't even know his story. I didn't find out his full story until the next day. And I'll tell you a bit more about that throughout. But my question for us as we begin, Isaiah 6 runs the gambit of of living for God and missions and following. But the first and ultimate question is, is God enough? Because I look around this room and and I, I... I have such great hope for us as a people of God that we not only love the word of God, but that we will apply it and live it out. But when push comes to shove, as King has already shared, will we do what we say we will do? Do what we say we believe? Does that so encompass our life that we can't help but radically follow what God leads us to in his word. And it starts not with verse 8 when Isaiah says, Hear my, send me. Often when you hear a missions message, they start there. But he doesn't say, Hear am I, send me first. No, go back to verse 1. And we see a picture of God's incomprehensible glory. Look at verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah had been reigning for 52 years. For most of the people of Israel, he was the only leader they had ever known. 52 years is longer than I've been alive. 52 years, especially then, was quite a long time. And so Israel is wrestling with this. They've lost their leader. And in this year, Isaiah is given a vision and he sees the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings covering their faces, two covering their feet, and with two they were flying. That's six wings. 
go ahead and try to get that mental picture. It's amazing. It's beyond our comprehension. I saw a beautiful bird this morning flying above the the new buildings right over here. And it just amazingly took a quick turn. And I was like, kids, did you see that? And no, they didn't. But that was two wings. And here we're told to envision a creature with six wings. And this is what is happening with those six wings and with these wonderful seraphs. They were flying and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they don't stop. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the people, the temple was filled with smoke. That is what I call worship. You see, when the seraphs were in the presence of the Lord, which they are all the time, they can't help. It's like they're searching for the right word and the only word they've got is holy. God, you are holy. Your glory fills this place. You are above all other. There is no other but you. And Isaiah gets this picture of the glory of God. And often when we think of the glory of God, we think about holiness. And that is true. God is, above all, a holy God. And holiness details this picture of purity, of unblemished, of without fault, without stain, without wrinkle. He is perfect and pure in every way. But when I think of the glory of God, it's not just His holiness that gets me because, you know, the angels are without fault, but God is holy and glorious. It's such a higher level. And to get what I mean, we have to turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, You'll you'll learn something about me today as with most of the scriptures, I, I love them. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 and 26, we get a bigger picture of God and his glory. Because in 25 and 26, we're asked the question, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of this? He who brings out the starry hosts, one by one, And calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of the starry hosts is missing. I have no idea how many stars there are in the galaxy and universe beyond what I can see. I live in Saikung, so I can see about ten on a good night. I have lived in middle America, so I have seen thousands. But I am told there are millions and billions and there are stars beyond our imagination. God's glory is incomprehensible because he knows every one of those stars by name. And not only that, but he put them there. Do you realize that missions always starts with an encounter with the glory of God? It doesn't start with the question of, will you go? It starts with, is God glorified? Will he be glorified in every part of my life? 
because his glory is incomprehensible. If you've ever considered dating, you often wonder this wonderful question. Teenagers, you get there, wait till later. It's just not worth the drama. But later on it is. And you get to that wonderful moment when you look at the eyes of this one you think could be the one and you ask yourself, is she, in my case, is she the one I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with? And for me, her name was Melissa and yes. And thankfully she said yes. When I asked her, will you spend the rest of your life with me? But you see, in a bigger, grander, glorious fashion, as God has invited my marriage to honor and serve and follow Him, He has called us, His bride, the church, to follow, honor, serve, and glorify God together as His people, pointing the world, being light in a dark world, toward Himself. The glory of God is our chief aim, to point people to encounter this glorious God. But you see, something happens when we encounter the glory of God because we're forced to look inwardly. And when we look inwardly, our response is often something similar to what Isaiah says next. He says in verse 4, or verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king who is holy and glorious and cannot look upon anything that is not holy and glorious. Uh Uh-oh. We have a problem. A holy God and a sinful man. The incomprehensible greatness and glory of God tells us throughout scriptures that man has fallen. From chapter 3 in Genesis on, we have been dealing with the effects of sin, of the lostness of man. We lost our way when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and say these wonderful words that we've been saying ever since. God, I know better than you. God, your way is good, but my way is better. God, I don't have to do it your way. But our sovereign God that counts each star and knows them each by name, our holy God that cannot look upon sin, says that sin must be dealt with. One of the most tragic realities of all of life is that we are sinners and that means we are condemned. Romans 5 tells us that we are erased, or we're not erased, we're removed from God's favorable presence. You saw that with Adam and Eve. They were removed from the Garden of Eden. We're alienated. We're called aliens. We're alienated from God in His presence. We're even hostile toward Him in Colossians. In Romans 5, as I already said, we're condemned. At enmity, we're actually enemies of God, James. Separate, separated from Christ, Ephesians. Children of wrath, doesn't that sound nice? No, it doesn't. It sounds horrible. That's That's in Ephesians 2, 
We love the darkness, as Reverend Long shared with us a couple weeks ago. We've been darkened in our understanding. We live in impurity and lawlessness. And all of these realities of sinful man lead to one inescapable conclusion. Of our own volition, fancy word for saying, of our own choices, in our own strength, we are sinners destined for an eternity in hell. I will not tiptoe around that reality. Apart from salvation, apart from somehow being saved, and I'm I'm leading up to that, we are broken. We are infected with sin and it will kill us. Not just, ah, oh, you know, we, we use hell in all sorts of the wrong way. And we use it as just a blatant, or as just a soft term uh, in our normal conversation. But hell is awful. It is beyond our comprehension. And it is eternally dark away from the presence of God. It is punishment like nothing we can imagine. And we are a condemned people. And Isaiah got that. I'm looking at a holy God and I am sinful. I am condemned. What do I do with that? Some of you know that uh, we, uh, my family's had a bit of an adventure with a dog that didn't last very long. And unfortunately, uh, my wife was quite significantly wounded in the process and I got the chance, I'm, I'm a little bit sadistic, and I went with her to her last doctor's appointment. When they opened it up and showed the wound, I got to look inside. And it was quite deep. It almost came out the other side. But I was struck by something as the doctor was explaining me the process. And then I followed it up to make sure I understood and talked to a microbiologist to explain. And I said, well, why aren't we stitching up the wound And he said, because there has been infection there and there is still bacteria and the wound has to clean itself and heal from the inside out. He he looked at me and in his English, he said, you have to get at the root of the problem for the wound to heal and your wife to be okay. I looked at Melissa and I said, I got a sermon illustration. I don't think she was happy with that sermon illustration because you see, we can say that the symptom is I lied. The symptom is I was unfaithful. The symptom is I looked at porn. The symptom is I gossiped. The symptom is all these things. But the root of the problem is we say, God, I don't need you. And I am my own God. And I can choose better. And apart from something. There is a world all around us making that choice every day with full knowledge that there is a choice they are making. Look at Romans 1, 18 through 20. They make the choice to live an evil and depraved life. They are not without excuse or they are not with excuse. They don't have an excuse. There is a world all around us, 17,000 people groups, that need to be told there is a glorious God that need to encounter him, need to be shown that we are broken, that we are sinful, just as Isaiah came to this place. But it didn't stop there. And in chapter 6, we see what happens next. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal, purified by fire. You get this picture in his hand. 
which he'd taken from the tongs of the altar and touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. To get the full story, you have to flip over a few pages. So if you would, would you follow me to Isaiah chapter 53? How do we understand that we can be saved, that yes, this infection that is crippling us, that is causing us to die, that is leading a world to an eternity of hell, and we're doing so little, yet there's hope. Well, where is there hope? Well, when you get to Isaiah 53, you get the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is guilty. He's the responsible sinner in the presence of a righteous God. So how could he be declared righteous? How could any of us? We're all guilty for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we sit in church and we quote that. Our kids learn it and memorize it. Boaz did great. He said, I knew all the right answers, but what do we do with it? Our problem isn't that we've just made bad decisions. Our problem is that we're sinfully lost and cut off from God. And Isaiah says, woe is me. And Isaiah 53 says, there's an answer. Verses four through six. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a prophetic word given to Isaiah talking about a very, very specific and real someone. Just out of curiosity, does anybody know who this is referring to? I would think we would say that with a little more in conviction and a little more excitement. So who is Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 referring to? Okay, that's better. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. Okay, so we realize that God is glorious, incomprehensibly holy in glory. (laughs) And we are fallen, lost, and infected man. Simply sinful. How can we be seen as innocent? Well, when you go back to the Passover, remember what happened. They would bring a lamb into their family, into their home, and after a few days, they would kill that lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts. Then a little while later, you would celebrate with the the sacrifice of atonement. And I've told you about this in the past, but let me remind you of what the sacrifice of atonement went and how it went. You see... Once the blood, the penalty of sin had been doled out, the priest would then take a second sacrifice, the scapegoat. And he would place his hands on the goat's head to symbolically show the passing of sin from the people on to the goat. And after the priest confessed the people's sins, the sacrificial goat was taken into the wilderness outside the camp, never to return again. It was a picture of God just completely removing the sins. 
Earlier in Isaiah, we're told to be remembered no more. The Hebrew word that was used in Leviticus as this is being explained, Leviticus 16, says the goat shall bear the sins. The goat will carry the cost. And it's the same words that are used to refer to the Savior in Isaiah 53. He has borne our grief to describe what Christ will do. He has carried it. So not only does Christ carry the penalty of our sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The servant will stand in our place and receive what was due to us. He keeps saying it's about our transgressions. Throughout, he uses the word our Jesus will do on our behalf, in our stead. We needed a Savior, and God sent His Son. I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Look at the cross. God, through Christ Jesus, does this for the salvation of sinners who have chosen time and again to go their own way. And God says, I will make a way for you. But unfortunately, not everyone has yet heard that message. I told you there's roughly 17,000 people groups in the world today. I don't use nations because nations change daily. But when you look at a people group, that explains an, an affinity that can, that can explain things like language and culture and shared experience that go on and on. And of those 17,000 people groups in this world today, roughly 6,000 are considered what's called unreached. Because you see, I just gave you the greatest news of all time. I told you that a glorious God looked down at sinful man and provided a way for us to be saved for all eternity. Can we say amen? Amen. Now, why are we sitting here? We are sitting here to worship and glorify God together because he continues to be at work. But the minute we have a conversation with whomever we're sitting next to, we have the opportunity to share light, love, and Christ into people's lives. Every moment of every day, everywhere we go. And there are 6,000 people groups that have less than 0.02% that have even ever heard the name of Jesus. How many people does that represent? Over 2 billion. 6,000 people groups representative of roughly 2 billion people on this earth have no access to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I just told you about. That's a lot of people. Many of them sit right here in Hong Kong. You realize in a globalized city, in one of the most diverse cities in all the world, we get the privilege of encountering people from all over We get to try to provide hope to those in the Philippines. We get to seek to invest in people from Pakistan, from India, from America. They need hope. We provide hope wherever we can to people from all over the world. But what about those outside of Hong Kong? What about those that have no access and no way to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? 
Well, the question was asked of Isaiah, who will go for me? Who will stand? And Isaiah responded, here I am, send me. And so what God told him next was go. Everybody's going to listen to you. People are going to fall down at their feet. And I mean, the country, God's chosen people are going to be returned to his glory and all is good, right? No. Isaiah, your mission field is going to be to a people that aren't going to listen. Their ears will be hardened. They will not respond. And you will largely speak in vain. Yes! That's why we get involved in missions, right? No. But you see, the thing is, we think that we get involved in missions to go change people's lives. We don't. We get involved in missions to bring glory to God. He has to change the lives. We can't. No matter how hard we try, it is a work of the Holy Spirit in people's life that changes them. Because our God, who knows every star by name, is at work. And it does have a plan. And he is a sovereign God. But we are commanded to go into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, which we're just about to do, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But sometimes we think that we have to go sell God. No, as King challenged us, we're called to live out the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that is about the glory of God, shown forth through his Son and their great love and empowering us through the work of the Holy Spirit to live a life that honors him as we seek first his kingdom and all his righteousness. And then as we go into all the world and tell others, I'm not going to stand up here and ask you to go next door to your neighbor and tell him about Jesus. I expect you to do that already. I'm going to ask you to say, would you lay down all of your life, all of your possessions, even if it cost you a child, even if it cost you everything, would God be enough that you would go wherever he would send you and say, I will follow you. Whether one person answers the call or not, I will go where you send me. I told you the story of my friend Steve. He's my new friend. He might not even remember my name at this point, but I liked him. But you see, the thing was, three years ago, Steve went back to America. Steve is a pastor and was pastoring a church, an international church in Manila in the Philippines. And Steve was on, his, uh, on a Harley Davidson going on a cross-country tour of America. And he hit a curve, and there was water on the curve, and he lost control of the bike, and it threw him off head first and broke his neck. He was instantly a quadriplegic. That means no function of any limbs. And he was expected to be dead within the week, and there was no hope. And so the church in Manila, and actually I remember hearing about this here in Hong Kong because the pastors here mobilized and prayed as well. And we began to pray. And the church in Manila began to wait. And the churches in America supported the family in every way they could. And he didn't die in a week. In fact, God started working in some amazing ways. And throughout the journey, after a year... Steve returned back to the Philippines to resume his role as senior pastor of the church. And he walked up on stage proclaiming that God is in control. And as long as we're on earth, we better be telling people about him. 
Steve still does that. In fact, he's preaching right now across the harbor over at Island ECC. But the amazing thing is I thought he was a cool guy on a scooter. No, the scooter allows him to move around with less pain because it's lower impact. And he goes wherever God leads him. I've had some minor inconveniences in my life, but nothing compared to that. Yet Steve didn't stay in America where it would have been comfortable. He came back to Manila. And you know, the first thing we heard him talk about, he's saying, guys, how can we help? There are a million people needing help just in Manila alone. What are we going to do? There are a billion plus people over this world that have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't take whoever's next to you. It takes us saying, I will go. Here am I. Send me. Next week, you're going to be presented with a list of opportunities and partnerships that we have here locally and abroad. Will you go? That might mean you step out and all that education you pursued your whole life, it gets used in a different direction. I was a business major first, and then I studied teaching English, and now I preach. I don't know how that works, but God does. A good friend of mine that also serves the Lord in mission studied accounting. Why anyone would study accounting is beyond me. It's kind of like studying math. (laughs) But yet, God calls us to be who he's created us to be. Objects of worship that we point everyone we come in contact back to the glorious wonder and incomprehensible holiness and greatness that is God. That when people come in contact with him, They can't help but say, woe is me. Save me, Lord. Will we go? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that the response is your responsibility and that you are working in people's lives. We trust you with that. But Lord, please make us a faithful people proclaiming your word proclaiming your gospel, your good news to all these people that so desperately need the reason for the hope that we have in Christ. Here we are. Send us. In just a moment, after we sing this song, we're going to shift and we're going to celebrate with four people who have said, Lord, I'm identified with you and I want everybody to know that. We're making disciples. God is making disciples and we're going to shift gears into that. We want to go into all the world baptizing disciples of all nations. Will you stand with us and will you go with us? So stand together and let's close in song as we shift gears. <laughs>